This morning's scripture is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, from the Common English Bible. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. My name is Megan and I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Um, Before we dive into scripture today, we have something special to celebrate. Um, This season of Advent, we have been taking an offering as a community each week um, to build wells overseas. I I mentioned to you all early on that I had seen the profound impact this had on a village that received their well for the first time. Um, When we set out on this project, we talked as a staff about what, what we could expect based on past Christmases, and we were hoping, we thought this was a reaching goal, that we might be able to build two or even three wells for villages around the world. Um, you all have blown us away this Advent. We have raised over $40,000, which amounts to more than 10 wells now. Um, that is 10 communities around the world that are going to experience life-changing new rhythms as they have access to clean water close to home. Um, so that is just incredible. Like We are celebrating the generosity of this community, what God has done. Um, we have one more week. If you would still like to participate, we may be able to bump it all the way up to 11. But um, this is really remarkable, you all. So thank you to those of you who have given so generously and sacrificially um, This truly will make an enormous impact on many, many people. So let's just say a word of thanks for that as we come to Scripture. God, I thank you for this community, for the evidence that we have just been given this Advent, that we are seeking to be people responsive to your gracious generosity to us. Thank you for the chance to echo just a small portion of that generosity and that abundance to people who need it and who will greet it with joy in corners of the world we may never see or even know the names to. We pray that as we gather today in worship and around scripture that you would just renew our vision, renew our hope, and our understanding of this great story that we are part of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, over the last month, we've been in the midst of this series about the intense simplicities that are at the heart of Christian faith. And last week we opened what I've been thinking to myself as the kind of start of a two-part conversation about the intensely simple answer to a really complicated question. And the complicated question we started exploring last week is basically, what does God want from human beings? Like, what is the thing that God wants most from us? Now, I said last week, most people, whether they're religious or not, Christian or not, have this kind of instinctive answer. If you were to say, what does God want? Most people would kind of instinctively say, what God wants is for people to be good. Right? And we know this because we, we all have some kind of experience with religion, and basically what religion does is it tells us what God considers good and bad behavior, and that it incentivizes the right behavior by giving us promises of reward or threats of punishment. Now, if, if we practice the right behavior, if we respond to the incentives, then viola, the world is a better place. Right? Isn't that the project of religion? I mean, it kind of intuitively makes sense. There's a reason that everybody thinks that's what religion does. Um, but the, the one problem I noted about this last week is that the early Christians, the, the first followers of Jesus who learned about God from Jesus himself, disagreed profoundly with that human answer about what God wants the most. What the first followers of Jesus heard from him, what, what they began to teach, was that the thing that God wants most is simply to be trusted. The, the early Christians were fond of quoting this verse. It's like their favorite verse from the Old Testament that comes from Genesis 15:6, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God, and God counted it as a mark of high moral character. And you see this verse being picked up a lot in the New Testament. One of the places is in Romans 4, where Paul, an early follower of Jesus, writes this. He says, The scripture that says it was credited to him wasn't written only for Abraham's sake. It was written also for our sake, because it's going to be credited to us too. It will be credited to those of us who have faith, who have trust in the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. According to the early Christians, what God counts as righteousness, what God counts as the essential ingredient of right character is trust. That's how far we got last week. Now, does that statement, does that argument leave you with any kind of big questions lingering? I mean, does this statement seem strange to anyone else? In double take, our our post-sermon conversation last week, the the kind of big question immediately came out, well, if this is true, why on earth would God want this? Why would God want faith so much? How how is trust, how is faith going to make anything actually better? Right, that's the big lingering question. If this is true, how is it actually going to help anything? And we ask this question in all seriousness because goodness knows the world needs help. It needs help in concrete ways. It doesn't just need people sitting in their closet believing things. We're we're very aware of this. Um, I'm still reeling from a news report I heard last week that suggested that doctors in Afghanistan are saying that around one million Afghani children are in danger of starving this winter from a combination of famine and U.S. sanctions. 
One million children. It seems like the headlines are constantly full of new scandals of misconduct by people in power. Meanwhile, it seems like democracy and even family systems may not survive the invention of Twitter. I mean, the case for God kind of turning up the pressure, putting the heat on, seems pretty obvious. Somebody has to tell us to get our act together. Somebody has to make us get a grip here. There's only one problem with this strategy of of basically fixing the world by ordering and threatening everyone into good behavior. The problem is, it just doesn't work. It's never worked. But we're just not very great at being good. I mean, sure, there are some of us, some of us here are particularly practiced, um, and, and we've gotten good enough that we can mostly hold it together in public. Like, we can bite our tongue, you can trust us to go through self-checkout without stealing candy bars. I mean, we can get into a political argument with a sibling without drawing a weapon. But guarantee us that nobody is watching, that no one's ever going to know. Or get us hungry enough, or tired enough, or scared enough, or with a few Christmas cocktails in our system, and all bets are off, right? It kind of reminds me of this story that is told at the very beginning of the Bible, um, just before the story of Abraham, the guy who trusted God. We're told a story about a different guy who had a different quality. It's the story of Noah. And we're told in this story that Noah is a truly good person. Genesis 6-9 says, In his generation, Noah was a moral and exemplary man. He walked with God. I mean, in his generation, what this is really saying is Noah was literally the best human being alive. He was the only good apple in the big rotten barrel. So so God takes this one truly good human being, and God instructs him to build a boat, fill it with animals, and then God opens the floodgates of heaven, the flood rushes in, and the whole filthy earth gets washed clean. All the bad people disappear. They're gone. And then Noah, the world's one truly good to his core man, gets off the boat, he disembarks to repopulate the earth, and fast forward a couple months one night, he drinks too much, he passes out naked, wakes up mad, and curses the son who happens to be standing there in front of him. Now, you might be reading this as a parent thinking, you know, every parent has bad days. Like, sometimes your buttons get pressed, you say things you regret. What's the big deal? And part, partly that's kind of true, right? Things just burst out of your mouth, you regret it later, you say you're sorry, you move on. Except for thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years, after Noah makes this careless curse, in a land called the United States that Noah has never even heard of, people will use this curse to justify the enslavement of millions of human beings for centuries. I mean, Noah would be horrified if he knew what his kind of careless words ended up costing the world. I mean, but, but that's the problem, right? Like, small things have a way of rippling out in ways we don't foresee and can't control. But pretty much everybody I know is looking for a Noah. Everybody I know is looking for a hero. They're looking for the one righteous person in a generation, 
Um, Young adults often tell me, you know, if I met just one person that was living the teachings of Jesus properly, then I would become a Christian. And sometimes the Noah that people are looking for isn't a person. What they're looking for is a community, a church. The, The one community, the one church that's actually doing it right. The Noah church. And sometimes we have this moment where for a second we think we found it. We found the person, we found the community, we found Noah. But time and time again, another moment comes when Noah falls off his pedestal. And then we're mad. Then we're devastated. And then the search begins all over again. And we think if we could just find the right person or the right community, we could get them steering the right boat, we would finally make it. I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but it isn't going to happen. We can hold out for Noah's all we want, but every Noah, sooner or later, is going to disappoint us. Because it turns out the lesson of Noah's story is that the world isn't divided between evil people who deserve to be drowned and righteous people who will fix everything if they're put in charge. Every time you reboot the system, the same pattern emerges. Every Noah is going to have his moments of heroism. He really is. But he's also going to have his moments of catastrophic failure. And in the end, it's more than likely it's going to be hard to tell which outweighs the other, the heroism or the failure. Like, which one was bigger? So in the Christmas story, we hear this moment where an angel appears to Joseph and tells him that his fiancée is pregnant, she's going to have a baby, and they were to name this baby Jesus, which means God saves. And this is the explanation the angel gives. He says, you're going to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Notice what the angel doesn't say is, Jesus will save people from the wrath of God who is mad about their sins. The angel says, this baby is going to save people from their sins themselves, from the wreckage those sins are inflicting on the world, from the catastrophic damage that Noah's, all the world's Noah's, with their small little flaws, are inflicting on themselves and on everybody else. Human beings actually do need a hero. We, we actually do need somebody who's going to do it right. We need somebody who's going to save us from ourselves. But there has been no hero forthcoming from us. We haven't produced one. Every kind of self-help road we've traveled has ended in a dead end. Which means there's only one kind of story left for humanity. The only kind of story left for us is a rescue story. And we have a rescue story. I mean, we are a part of a people who have unleashed, we have broken a dam that was holding back the forces of evil and chaos. Individually and collectively, we have broken this dam and we have unleashed a tidal wave of destruction. I mean, I I heard some stories from my older congregants at my last church in Oregon about what happened when the dam up um, in, the, in the gorge in Oregon broke way back, I think, in the 60s, and how out of the blue, people who lived hundreds of miles from this dam walked out the, their front door and saw a torrent, a huge raging river, tearing through their front yard outside their door. 
I mean, this is what we've done to the world. We've broken this thing, holding back chaos. It, it's all just kind of been unleashed. It's tearing through. And now all of us are just being swept along. We're being battered by the debris, just kind of swept through. And no matter how hard we swim in the midst of this current, we aren't getting out without the help of someone who hasn't, all, hasn't been claimed by the raging river. We're not, getting we're not getting out of here, no matter how hard we swim, without the help of somebody who isn't caught in it. Enter into this story Jesus, the hero of our story. God, who's been watching history, experiencing with it with us, sees there is no hero forthcoming from us, so God decides to step in and perform the rescue personally. And God, in Jesus, wades right in the middle of, the, of this raging river with us, except that he is the only person strong enough to keep his footing against the current. So where does faith, where does trust come into this rescue operation? Well, here all of us are in this raging river being torn downstream, and there's somebody standing in the middle of the river with his feet solid on ground saying, I can help you. Trust me. Just grab on my hand and let me tow you to shore. I mean, there's bad news and there's good news here. So let's start with the bad news, the tough truth. We, we are not in a position to save ourselves or anyone else through do-gooding. We're not going to save the world through do-gooding because we can't even save us. And the longer we're in denial about that, the more danger we are to ourselves and everyone else. I mean, what happens when we're in denial, when we think, like, we can do this, we, we can save everyone, is we tell people, grab onto us, and we start paddling with all our might towards shore, and we're working really hard, but sooner or later, our strength gives out. Well, or sometimes what happens is, as we're fighting that terrible current, we get hit, we get a wound by some kind of debris. We get hit hard, and all of a sudden, what happens? We go under. And everybody else we've been keeping afloat, they go under with us. I mean, let me paint an, another scenario here. Sometimes what happens is we're swimming along and we spot somebody in the water and we think that person is worth saving. I, I feel compassion for that person. And we swim over them and, and we grab onto them and we're trying to save them. But it turns out the only way we feel like we can do that is to shove the head of somebody else underwater we think is less worthy so that we can pull that person on top. Right? We're like, I feel bad for you. You deserve it. Down you go. Now I've got you. I mean, there, there are all sorts of scenarios like this that play out. But, but the truth is, it's a lifelong work of all we can manage just to let ourselves be rescued. I don't know if you've ever talked to someone who works in water rescue, but one of the things that people who rescue people for a living will tell you is that when, one of the hardest parts about rescuing people is when people are drowning, they often panic. And drowning people have a habit of fighting the person who's come to rescue them. Right? They're, a person who's drowning in the water is flailing around, they panic, and they often fight the person who has a hold of them, like trying to push them under. When you are in a water situation and you are over your head, the best thing you can do is cooperate. Stop resisting. Relax your body. <laughs> Relax your body, follow the instructions, and let yourself be drawn back to shore by somebody who is a stronger swimmer than you. 
The best thing you can do in this situation is relax, cooperate, follow instructions, and let yourself drawn in, be drawn in by the stronger swimmer. I mean, the hardest, the most important work of the spiritual life is letting yourself be rescued. And that is the work of an entire lifetime. It is the work of an entire lifetime to get to the point where you can actually acknowledge that you are powerless and that you are in desperate need of help. It's the work of an entire lifetime to stop flailing around and fighting the rescuer and stop resisting and let ourselves be rescued. It's the work of a lifetime to learn how to relax and let ourselves be drawn along by the one who actually has the strength to make it to shore. And maybe you listen to that description that, that the main work of the spiritual life is to let yourself be rescued. And maybe you think to yourself, that sounds really selfish. I mean, honestly, it, it often does to me too. Like, th this is the, we're, what we're touching here this morning. This is the very heart of the Christian story. And it's so hard to grapple with because it sounds so selfish. And honestly, my, my feeling that that is like the wrong way to think about things is so strong that I spend my entire life swirling in that water, snatching at people, trying to save them. And what often happens as I'm doing that is, you know, and, and I'm in the midst of performing my own water rescue, and I look around at the people next to me, and I get really mad at the people drowning next to me that they aren't being more helpful. Like, can't you see that there are people here that need help, darn you? You know, meanwhile, as they're fighting like crazy to keep their own heads up. And when I'm done being mad at them, where I really get furious is at myself, because I think, why is it so hard for me to keep my head above water? Why does it feel like every time I got a good stroke in, suddenly I go down? Uh, why is it that I can't seem to maintain my grip on other people, no matter how, many, how determined I am to pull everybody in? I'm finding it, it takes all the courage and the humility I can muster to consider the possibility that the problem isn't that I haven't perfected the technique. I mean, about every New Year's, I think, maybe I can fix this by coming up with the right prayer habit. Right? Like maybe I can find some way to get on top of this so I can be a better rescuer. But maybe the problem isn't my technique or my method. Maybe the problem is the water is too dark and strong. And I'm too weak a swimmer. And I can't even save myself, let alone everybody else. Maybe that's the truth of the situation that I continually feel tempted to deny. Maybe that's the fact. But even if that is the fact, that what that doesn't have to mean is that that's the end of the story. It doesn't have to be, mean that you just abandon the entire rest of the world that's caught in the river. So what, what happens when we actually admit that we can't make it? What, what happens when we stop struggling so hard? What happens if we relax and we let somebody else take the weight for a while? Well, the first thing that tends to happen is we stop adding to the churning of the water. Right? When we stop flailing around, we stop adding to the churn. We stop pushing other people underwater with our need for them to be our hero, for them to be our Noah. We stop pushing their heads down that way. We stop pushing people underwater trying to rescue some by putting them on their shoulders. We stop climbing on top of other people in our panic for our own survival. We're not fixing the river yet, right? But we've stopped adding to the churn. And maybe a little while after that, 
after we've stopped adding to the churn, as we start to catch our breath and get our bearings in the water, as we begin to trust the arms that are towing us along, maybe something else becomes possible. Now that all of our energy and effort isn't been taken up by paddling like crazy, maybe what's possible is we have an arm free to extend to somebody else so that they can be pulled along with us. Keep in mind there's a critical difference here. This is not our rescue, right? We are not the ones swimming. There's somebody else who's swimming for both of us. We we don't have the strength or the endurance to be the rescuer. All all we are doing is we are becoming part of a chain of connection between them and the hero who is going to do the work. I mean, maybe that's how the world actually gets better. Not by weak swimmers pretending to be saviors, but by drowning people trusting the lifeguard, and once they've stopped flailing, having a hand free to extend to somebody else. Maybe that's how the world actually gets better. At the end of the day, the intensely simple claim at the heart of Christianity is that the story of the world is a rescue story. The early Christians would say, we have been and we are being and we will be saved. Not just us, but the entire world. And that rescue isn't going to come from us. That rescue is being performed by God personally. That's the story at the heart of our faith. So let me leave you this morning just with an invitation. This invitation is not coming from me as if I'm someone standing outside the river dry on the riverbank. This is coming from someone else swirling in the water with you. Maybe you were here today and you have been swimming with all of your strength for a really long time. Maybe you really are strong and courageous. Maybe you really have been fighting hard to keep yourself and others afloat. But maybe a moment has been slowly dawning on you for a while that it just isn't enough. It's never going to be enough. You can't keep going this way. Your muscles are trembling. Your lungs are burning. Your head is going underwater. You're not sure which direction the shore is anymore. And you couldn't be more aware that there are more lives than yours at stake in this. You couldn't be more aware that people are bound to you in this. I mean, if this is where you are, just hear these words from Jesus speaking for God. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You've been strong and you've tried hard, but you were never the Savior. Jesus is here, God with us, in the middle of the river, and he never grows tired or weary. He's swimming with all of the power of God behind him. He is able to draw you with him, And there's nothing you can do to help this except to stop resisting and let him do it. Stop fighting. You can't save anyone else while you yourself are drowning. Relax your muscles and let him draw you along for a while. Recover your strength and then when you feel ready, extend your hand and grab on to someone else's. 
one person, grabbing another, grabbing another, grabbing another, grabbing another, until a hot, an entire human chain forms with only one person swimming at the front of it. He is the one that will get the whole world to shore. That's the rescue story that we're part of. Let's sit for a moment and try to just breathe into that relief. Pray with me. God, I have been hearing this story my entire life, but I have to be told it and to tell it again and again and again because I'm still trying to believe it. On every, any given day, 90% of me still thinks that the world needs a savior and that that must be me. And it's a heavy burden to carry. Lord, I recognize I am not alone in this, that there are many people in this room, there are many Noahs in this room, truly good people who have been swimming like crazy for a really long time trying to save themselves, trying to help others, trying to carry the world. But there have been hints, some of them becoming overwhelming, that we simply aren't enough for what needs to be done. There's not enough in us to save our family, our friends, our neighbors, our city, our country, our whole world. There's not even enough in us every day to keep our own heads above water. But we thank you for this incredible news of Christmas that we have a savior, we have a rescuer. There is someone who keeps his footing in the strongest currents. A swimmer strong enough to get us all to shore. So as much as we are able this morning, we just relax. We relax our internal muscles. We stop our flailing. We let you grab hold of us. Thank you for coming to the rescue. Thank you for demanding nothing. Let this good news, let this assurance of your power and your grace just wash over us today in ways that renew our strength and our hope. In the name of Jesus, our rescuer, we pray. Amen.